we try to understand human beings. And as you know, to understand human beings is not that, that easy. We try to understand societies. And as you know, to understand societies is not as easy as it sounds. And, and all this without any written evidence. Welcome to the Knowledge Archives podcast. We're a group of students on a mission to learn from as many different disciplines of knowledge as possible. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm glad to be joined by Dr. Volker Haidt, Professor of the Department of Cultures at the University of Helsinki in Finland. He studies prehistoric cultures like the Yamnaya people in Eurasia 5,000 years ago. And today, we specifically talk about the tools we use to study this far into the past and the challenges and mysteries that come up in the process. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. I'm very excited to learn about just this very unique era of history. But before we get started with the questions, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, what you're working on right now, and how you got interested in this area of work. Uh, that's a complicated question. That's actually, I, I could spend uh, hours to talk about your question, to be honest. Who am I? I'm Volker Heidt professor of archaeology at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Before that, I was a professor of archaeology at the University of Bristol in the UK. I'm holding a German passport, but my family is Franco-German. It's coming from the border area between France and Germany. I'm a prehistoric archaeologist, but I'm also very much interested in sciences, and I'm trying to apply uh, various sciences into our own methodology in order to better understand the past. And here particularly the application of biosciences, but also environmental sciences. Most recently I've been dealing with isotopes in the context of archaeology, but also more recently DNA. And of course, fascinating results are coming out uh, that that help us better understanding our archaeological past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that's quite a varied background. And what has some of your recent work been focusing on? So, in a nutshell, events 5,000 years ago that's still visible nowadays, for example, in the gene pool of Europeans, in European Eurasian languages, but also to some extent also in the social organization of Europeans. And here, again, it's multidisciplinary international work that we are currently doing. Yeah, I definitely want to dive deeper into picking apart some of these. But I guess, first of all, it would be great to have some historical context about the Yamnaya people, the time period, the region, and the culture that we're going to talk about. Time period, we are talking about the final centuries of the fourth millennium BC uh, region. We are talking about the Eurasian steppes, and here particularly the so-called Pontic-Caspian steppe, north of the Black and the Caspian Sea, in nowadays countries of Ukraine and Russia. But first of all, let's talk about what defines Yamnai. What makes them so, so distinguished is that Yamnaya spreads over huge distances. I mean, we don't know exactly where they do come from, but within a few centuries, they spread over 5,000 kilometers. 
are the easternmost of their burials we find in the Altai Mountains or even Tinxian and Mongolia. The westernmost burials we find at the Tissa River in Hungary. So they stretch over more than 5,000 kilometers. And we know now also that, that this expansion uh, happened really rapidly within a few generations. They cover these huge distances. But we only have a few, a handful of settlements of Yamnaya. What we have mostly are, are their burials. And not only their burials, we also have their burial mounds called Kurgans as the monuments they left behind. And Yamnaya is characterized by its very typical burial custom. The deceased is being laid down with flexed legs, orientated with the head mostly towards the west, uh, arms along the body or down at the pelvis. What we find also is that the burial pit is mostly rectangular with uh, rounded corners. We also see that their burial pits are being arranged in a way that a kind of a cozy home is being created. They are being placed on mats. They get pillows under their heads. We see occasionally also some carpets. We see furs. We see that uh, a nice chamber is being created. They use wooden beams to cover this chamber. They, know, they use further mats in order to seal it. And then they erect a big burial mound on top of it. Yeah, that's very intriguing how they had such specific burial sites found everywhere. Could you explain a little bit more? Why did they spread and how did they spread so suddenly? Why does this happen? Again, we can only speculate. We have several models that may explain it. I think the one that I'm feeling or having the most confidence in at the moment is a socioeconomic model that starts with a key innovation that arrives in the step. And that key innovation is wheel and wagon. And uh, that enables these people, or maybe only a subgroup, a certain group only, to exploit the big step, the sea of grass away from the rivers. With uh, wheel and wagon, they can carry tents, they can carry water, they can carry all their goods, if you want. And then the they can go into the deep sea of grass and can exploit a huge energy reserve, grass, by the animals. And because of that, they can keep larger herds. Previous societies in that region were more, they had already domesticated animals, but relying more on the, on the rivers. They were also hunting and fishing. We see this in the isotopes and in the reservoir effects they carry with them. But now with Yamnaya, they exploit the steppes and they become pastoralists. And they have cattle, they have sheep mostly. Some segments of their society are already becoming the first nomads in the world. Mm. So if I could say back what I heard, the Yamnaya people, so we're talking about Stone Age people still, that... Well, it's not Stone Age. Uh, the, the, mm. the Russian archaeologists call them already early Bronze Age. And they have copper objects in their graves. Uh, we have a, a, a tool that we have excavated some two years ago, which is already tin bronze. So to some extent, you can call them early Bronze Age. Early Bronze Age. So still thousands of years ago, and they were a culture that was focused on, say, the western side of Russia and just the Eurasian steppe. But what makes them distinct and worth studying is because 
they were able to very rapidly expand into a lot of what we now define as modern countries in Europe. And very rapidly, we started to see these distinct burial sites, which is what tells us that they spread. Is that correct? It's correct to some extent, because what we know also now is that Yamnaya is fairly well adapted to this special steppe environment. You have to understand the steppe is flat. It's a sea of grass that's going as far as the horizon lasts. And it's only interrupted with rivers. Occasionally, you have also some ponds or lakes in it, which dry out in summer. And on the horizon, occasionally, at its edges, edges, you see some mountains. But otherwise, it's a sea of grass that stretches from modern-day Hungary to China on the other side of Eurasia. But it's only a relatively narrow belt because it's depending very much on the amount of rainfall. So south of it, you have less rainfall and it holds how it turns into a desert or a steppe desert. North of it, you have more rainfall and that's why there are growing trees. And we call this the forest steppe. And if you go further to the north, you're then entering the huge, again, is another huge ecozone, the, the forests of Eurasia. So it's a narrow stripe, which in some parts of Eurasia is only 100 kilometers wide. But it stretches from yeah, Europe on the one side to China on the other side. And they are fully adapted to this environment. So then actually they never leave this environment or only, we have a few outliers, which is very interesting to, to understand why they leave, but, but they are fully adapted to this ecozone, they are fully adapted to this landscape, and also their economy is fully adapted to just this step landscape. So a few years ago, we, we didn't fully understand the whole Yamnaya story. We thought Yamnaya is also responsible for the transmission of what is called step ancestry, or Yamnaya ancestry, it's called. And we thought that Yamnaya people would also then be responsible for the transmission of this Yamnaya ancestry to regions outside the actual steppe belt, to temperate Europe, to the forested parts of Europe, even to Western Europe. Uh, since very recently, we know this is not true, because we have to take into account another society that's called Cordedware. Cordedware is somehow related to Yamnaya, but it's not the same. The idea originally was it was proposed by the two nature paper of 2015, that Cordedware people are actually descendants of Yamnaya people. It's not true. They are more cousins than they are the sons and the daughters of Yamnaya. And they probably also do come from a different region. While Yamnaya is, as I said, fully adapted to the steppe, the origins of Cordedware were probably lying in more in the forest steppe zone. So regions further to the north and probably in what is now Ukraine. And these Cordedware people, they are then responsible for forwarding this so-called steppe ancestry, as we call it now, to many parts of Central Europe, Northern Europe, and Western Europe over a few centuries. But by about 2500 BC, this steppe ancestry reaches uh, the Atlantic. It reaches Spain and, and Portugal. And around 2450 BC, people with this step ancestry arrive in Britain and soon afterwards in Ireland. And when you're talking about the sharing of ancestry, so you're talking about these cousins of the Yamnaya, 
they migrate over other regions of Europe and then they start and settle and mix families with local populations? Well, this is the strange part of the story. This is also one of the, the most recent discoveries. I'm talking about the steppe Yamnaya now first and then Kordedwe afterwards. Steppe Yamnaya doesn't seem to have been that belligerent. I mean, they barely have tools and weapons in their graves, but this might be due to their special burial custom, which doesn't have that much equipment anyway. But we cannot see that many injuries in their bones. I mean, we have now assessed several hundred Yamnaya skeletons from the southeast of Europe, and it seems that the degree of interpersonal violence of Yamnaya users is relatively few cases only, at least that we see in the grave. The situation with Cordedware is different. Cordedware has weapons in their graves, again, due to their special burial custom that allows it. But we see also a good deal of, of signs of interpersonal violence in Cordedware burials. What we see also for Yamnaya, particularly Yamnaya, I can speak for Yamnaya uh, west of the Black Sea, that they interact with locals. We call this very neutrally in archaeology, we call it interaction. Um, the uh, geneticists would call it admixture. Yeah, we see them interacting with local societies of the early Bronze southeast of Europe. They take their objects into their graves. It's the other way around that the locals take elements of their burial customs and so on. So it's a perfect interaction. Geneticists see this also in that the gene pool of the locals is being mixing up with those of our Yamnaya migrants. In Cordotware, it seems that the whole story is a bit different. They also interact with the locals, but at the moment it seems they are only interacting with local women. Local Y chromosome signatures within a few generations seem to be disappearing. And this happens in Central Europe, in Northern Europe, but also in Western Europe. The degree of exchange may vary depending on the region, but I think the picture is overall the same. A latest study from Bohemia, which is in the heart of Europe, has shown that Within uh, two centuries, local societies simply disappear as an identity group. So in a scenario, we don't know whether it's true, but this is the current picture. It seems Cordedware is taking over a good deal of Central, Northern and Western Europe. And they interact with locals as well, but more with the female side of them. So they take local women into their own society. We see this, but it seems that the men are being on the losing side. Mm. So I think this might be a good point to talk about some of these different features being analyzed. So regarding the DNA, it sounded like you were saying uh, on a biological level, when people have children, the Y chromosome is being passed on from just the male involved. And you were saying that the Y chromosomes found in the local European population disappeared. So you're saying that local European women, they started having more and more children with the Cordedware people, and that's how that population started mixing in with the locals. Yes. It, it's an admixture, if you want, but it's a gender-differentiated one. And this makes it very interesting for us. You, you have also to, to distinguish between... I would call it identity and ethnicity in this case. But identity is clear. So, so we have two identities. We have the identity of the local societies. And then comes 
recorded were in at about 2,900 BC. We know they come in from the east, they are migrants. And uh, within a few centuries, we see them being the only society that flourishes in these regions. So identity-wise, it's a cultural change that happened. Previous cultures disappear, a new one establishes itself and flourishes. The biological side, as I said, is a bit more complex and complicated and sinister, if you want. So we see also uh, genetically a new population is coming in with this step signature. And we have local populations that are biologically distinct. And within a few centuries also, we see changes that the Y chromosome signature of the locals more or less disappears completely, while those of the newcomers uh, supersedes them. But at the same time, we see also that the whole genome, it's changing in that we see the intake of the locals. So again, then we try to bring this picture together, cultural change at the one hand, biological change at the other hand. And in the case of this a third millennium example here of Cordedware, I think the two are, are matching actually quite well. Mm. So the analogy I'm thinking of is, you know, you have two windows with which you can look into the past and they both show slightly different pictures, but you have to compare the results to figure out what happened. So let's start on the biological side. When you're looking at, say, the chromosomes and the gene pools of the population, how does one do that? Are you analyzing the DNA of the people in the burial graves that you find? Yes. We don't only have uh, the DNA. There's a much older technique and methodology existing. This is assessing skeletons. It's bioanthropology. And uh, bioanthropology has already told us many decades ago, people have different properties. They have different skull forms. They have different stature, for example. So, so already bioanthropology told us that there are big changes have happened in those centuries of this transition. And it's only very recently that DNA came on top of this. And DNA is, of course, much more sophisticated and much more clearer uh, than, than the bioanthropological results that we had before. Mm. And then regarding the identity side of the picture, what types of evidence are you an analyzing to figure out the cultural changes? Well, um, we have many ways in, in, in looking at this. There's, for example, their material culture is changing completely. So we have previously certain potteries, decorations, technologies of making pottery. All this is changing at this transition. Uh, the second item uh, that, that we have to our disposal are burial customs. Burial customs are also changing completely. From previous sub-megalis or megalis for a good deal of Central and, and Northern and Western Europe, there are changes to single burials and burial now. Another item of, under, of our understanding of change are settlements. Settlements do also change. House forms do change. The shapes, architecture of settlements do change. So we see a lot of changes in the record in these centuries. And here... You talked about how when we're looking at these different types of evidence in the past, we have to be careful to note that we're only looking at very specific sites and times, and we can't tell what's going on in between those. Mm. 
what you are now addressing is one of the key problems that we are dealing with in modern archaeology. Because if you are looking at changes on a continental scale, it can be very different from when you just look into a region or when you just look at sites. That means that the overall picture, when you look or when you try to compare thousands of kilometers, may be very different from when you just look into a certain river valley. It's the same like with the trees and the forest. Okay, if you understand a tree species, you're not necessarily understanding the whole wood. And if you understand how a whole wood works, you may have difficulties to understand the individual trees. It's a matter of perspective. And of course, we try to reconcile our understanding of local features, regional features, with the big picture. The other key element here is time. Time is crucial because if you look at our modern days, our world of the 21st century is very different from what happened 200 years ago. And our identity or our approaches to identity and biology are very different from those 200 years ago. But we are talking about events that happened 5,000 years ago. And of course, if you have something, if you compare things of the final centuries of the fourth millennium with those of the first centuries of the third millennium, there can be big differences. I mean, we are talking again about several hundred years apart. But with our methods of dating, we are sometimes not as accurate in order then to compare what's really contemporary. And that makes another problem. And this is a very inherent problem of modern archaeology. It's time resolution and our, our methods in order to date features. And uh, we mostly use radiocarbon dating, but radiocarbon dating isn't as good as it should be. There are lots of problems with radiocarbon dating. There's the problem of calibration. There's the problem of the samples. There's the problem of the reservoir effect. There's the problem of the old wood effect. And there are also some little problems with each individual lab. So trying to combine and and understand the big picture, trying to combine ethnicity and identity, it all depends on our understanding of the timescale. This is fascinating on a theoretical level, but to dive deeper, what's an example of a real-life belief that you had in the field before that you had to re-examine due to these issues? Look, this, this is at the core also of archaeology. And of course, we, we have lots of different strains of evidence. We have archaeology, we have sites, we have graves. And we try in, in one way or another to reconcile on them, all of them and to bring them into a coherent picture. And this is the big problem we are facing. Try to understand events that happened so long ago and try also to understand how people are related to each other, how people are acting in a coordinated way, how people are managing things. And we try to understand human beings. And as you know, to understand human beings is not that that easy. We try to understand societies. And as you know, to understand societies and why societies do something is not as easy as it sounds. And, And all this without any written evidence. I mean, if we would have if we would have tablets uh, written in whatever kind of language showing us what they, these people were thinking, what are their motives, uh, what are their basics of society, that would have been much easier 
For us, it's a big challenge to understand events in those few centuries. Yeah, I guess a good way to wrap up would be to talk about your current perspective looking forward. Are there any conclusions or widely accepted beliefs right now about the Yamnaya or the Coded Ware people that you're a little bit skeptical of and you think that in the next few years people are going to be re-examining? I mean, this is the nature of research. We are trying to understand something, but within a few years, the picture may have already changed completely. I mean, all this new evidence about events 5,000 years ago, and particularly the, the role of DNA in it, came from two nature papers published in 2015. Now, six years later, I can tell you a lot of their results are actually very questionable, and, and they may not, may not stand anymore. And, but this is, again, it's the nature of research. And what I'm publishing now may already be obsolete in a few couple of years because we find new graves, we apply new, new, new kind of analysis, new methods. Uh, DNA is constantly publishing hundreds, if not thousands of new DNA screenings every year. And the picture is constantly changing. Some, some nice scholars call it the zeitgeist because we are also influenced by our environment, by our politics, by our mental linking with the modern day world. If you would talk with someone who has lived 20 years ago, he would tell you, oh, 20 years ago, many things were very different. In 20 years into the future, many things what we take now for granted may also change very much. And what I'm telling you now, and the picture that I think is, is, the, is a realistic one. If you talk to a good colleague of mine, he may tell you, oh, Volker Heide is completely wrong on that, or this and this, he's exaggerating here, and he is wrong on that and that, and he sees it very differently, or she. So all is in flux. Results are in flux, perspective are in flux, understanding is in flux. And this is the nature of research. It sounds like as a career, this line of work has really opened you to changing and adapting to new skills and reconsidering your beliefs. But, but this, is, this is what any researcher should be doing. You should be open for, for new results. And, and every, every new result that comes in, every new evidence is, of course, um, a changing your own understanding of events. I mean, we had recently seen the advent of DNA and more and more isotopic data coming in, new techniques. I mean, recently was a paper about horses and, and milk use in, in, in Yamaya context. Every new result triggers something of, can your picture be actually all right? How does it change uh, the whole story of events that you have in your mind? What may have happened? And also, we are working multidisciplinarily. So it's not only our own archaeological record that let us uh, think about reconstructing past events, but nowadays you have to take into account all these sciences, DNA, bioanthropology, environmental sciences. At the moment, climate is very much on vogue. How was climate 5,000 years ago? And how did climate and climate change influence events? And why people 
are moving. Maybe the reason why Yamnaya expanded so rapidly is not due to this nice innovation of wheel and wagon, which we are still using nowadays, by the way, but it's maybe due to climate change. It's maybe due that the environment forced them to move. That's also a possibility. And at the moment, we are highlighting wheel and wagon, but in 10 years, we may highlight climate change for the reasons of why Yamnaya moved. As a closing analogy, do you think this would make sense? It's like we're in a museum gallery, like we're walking down the hall to look at what these pictures are that we're seeing, except it's just a bunch of windows. Every window gives us one sliver of what actually happened. But as you're, as you're highlighting right now, in the present moment, the windows that we decide to build based on what is popular and based on scientific progress and what tools are available, you're constantly changing. And so we are also changing along with that. We are constantly changing. Our brains are constantly adapting uh, to our environment and what the environment talks and, and does and, and presents. And, and so does our views of the past are constantly adapting and changing as well. But, but nevertheless, what can be taken for sure is there were big changes happening in the western half of Eurasia at about 5,000 years ago that still have their repercussions until nowadays. Yeah, I think that's a great, interesting note to wrap up on, how we're still seeing different versions of the past, but then also how that's still affecting us. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain, I'm sure, what seems like simple details to you, but what are very fascinating details for everyone else. Okay. Well, thanks for the interview, then.